0: I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. I'll be reading from verse 31. I want to share with you a message entitled, What's in your hand? Seed-sized beginning, God-sized dream. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. He told them another parable. This is Jesus speaking. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Now we know today that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed that we know about today, but scholars tell us that the Palestine farmers... They were very aware of the mustard seed, and this was one of the smallest that they would use in their gardens, and they had known a lot about this paradox. A very small seed, a very small piece of something could grow into something huge. Scholars tell us that a uh, mustard seed can produce a bush or even a tree-like structure that's 10 to 12 feet tall. The mustard seed was very common to the people who were hearing this parable. Jesus is likely alluding to something that is not so common to them. Out of something so small can come something so big, and it's not just for the tree's sake. The birds come and they find rest and refuge in that bush or that tree. Jesus is likely alluding to Daniel chapter 4 verse 21, suggesting that the kingdom of heaven will expand over all the world. The church of Christ will reach around the world through all generations, and people from all nations will find rest in it. It's, it's something when we, we think about this seed-sized beginning that Jesus is talking about in a parable that grows into something much bigger. My heart today is to tell you, I'll tell you once, and not just two or three times, but over and over, God has a seed-sized beginning that's been planted in you, and He has a God-sized dream that He wants to bring about in your life. We see this not just in one parable. We see this laced all throughout Scripture, all over the place. And so today, we're going to take what I like to call an ADD tour through the Bible. If you like just to stay in one passage, we'll, we'll get back to some of that. But, but today, we're going to see that this is not an isolated truth. This is all over the place. So if you can't flip to it fast enough, you just jot notes and don't ever take my word for it. You study it throughout the week and you see if God's word does not come back true every time. This seed size beginning, we see it in the very life of Jesus. If you're taking notes, write this in the birth of Jesus. That's a seed size beginning. Uh, Who would have imagined that the king of all kings would be born of a Virgin Mary and and put in a a lowly stable in a manger? Who would have thought that all that would have started with a little baby? The ministry of Jesus. That's a seed-sized beginning. It was a humble ministry. It was a ministry that didn't bring a lot of fame to him. In fact, Scripture tells us that Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. He was homeless. When Jesus went about his ministry, he... uh, wasn't very well received in his hometown. He was kicked out of his hometown. In fact, every place that he would show up, the religious leaders would get together and they would meet before he would show up, not to greet him, not to roll up the red carpet, but to be ready to refute whatever he had to say. This was a very small and humble beginning to something that was prophesied to be so huge. We see even the death of Jesus The birth, the ministry, and the death of Jesus, these seed-sized beginnings, the disciples had to be confused. They were expecting this political takeover, expecting a military charge to go forward, yet the Son of God knew that it was through this powerful seed-sized beginning of death, even death on a cross, that would be the path to conquer sin and death in the grave. Just a few hours later, this seed-sized beginning takes fruition in a God-sized dream. It's the resurrection of Jesus. Write that in. The resurrection of Jesus. A God-sized dream of conquering sin, death, and the grave where there was no way to get to God. God says, I have a plan and I have a way for you to get to me. It's in conquering sin death, and death through my son, Jesus Christ. We see also that this begins something else and this God-sized dream takes place in the birth of the church. The commissioning of the disciples and the birth of the church is where now we take this way that has been made for us to get to God. And we're the carriers of the good news, the great commission. And we give out hope. We give out forgiveness. We give out restoration. And we are now the place where people around the globe can find rest. Coming back to Jesus' parable. Now we can stop right there. and That's a good little devotional nugget. That's a Facebook point. That's just a kind of shot in the arm. And after a couple good songs from Pastor Edgar in the choir, you go, "Whoa, I'm ready to go. And that, that may be okay, but that's not what God has for us today. Now, that's the warm-up for what God has for us today, but that's not what he has for us. Because the seed-sized beginning leading to a God-sized dream is very tangible. It's very real. He wants to do it right now in your life. There are situations that you're facing that I don't have to, to jog your memory. You know what they are. It seems so small. It seems so insignificant. It seems like nothing can ever come of it. But God has a plan for you in it. I told you that this is woven all throughout Scripture. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 and 4, uh, we don't have time for me to read all the passages. But I want you to hold it in your hand and see as you, you just kind of skim through it that this is stuff That's very tangible and real. I'm not making this up. God came to Moses in a burning bush. If you've read these passages, you know about this. Moses encounters a living God. The Word says when Moses saw the burning bush, he went over to take a look at it, and God called him by name. I want you to imagine that that you come over to this bush that's burning and it's not being consumed, and then the Almighty God doesn't just say, Hey, you. He didn't say that. He said, "Hey, Joe." He said, "Hey, Ash." He said, "Hey, Brady." He called Moses by name and he called him to himself. And and we know Moses's response. He wasn't very receptive of what God had to say, and we give Moses a hard time. And we say, Moses, why would you argue with God? Why would you? I mean, this is the Almighty God. Because we would never do that, would we? When was the last time you saw God move in the last seven days in your life? What would you think about it? It's not a question if, if God moves anymore or if He moved in your life or the life of someone else. It's a question if you even got close enough to take note of it. It's a question if you just reasoned it away and rationalized it away or if you gave glory to God for what He's doing. But even worse yet, we can praise God for what He's doing, but then when He comes to us, we argue with God, too. So I don't, I don't argue with God. How many of you know that ignoring is a lot like saying no? Parents? Kids, don't try that. Mom and Dad say something, you just ignore them, it's really close to saying no. And no is the first answer in an argument. God is talking to Moses, and He is arguing with him. He says Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell them to let my people go. Moses says, God, just time out. Suppose I go and, and they want some proof. They want to know how, how I've really been sent by you. So what if they ask me your name? Moses is thinking, I kind of got God. God tells him what to say. Well, I wasn't expecting that. And, but what if, what if they don't believe me after I say that? And, and a little bit later in chapter 4, Moses says, God, you, you must not mean me. God answers all of his questions and does some things to prove to him. And and he says, you must not mean me. In fact, God, I just don't want to go. I just don't want to do it. He argues with him. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, look at this. Exodus 4, 2. God asks a question that we're going to take this question and allow it to be impressed on our hearts today. What's in your hand, Moses? Write that in. What's in your hand, Moses? And verse 2, he he kind of answers a staff. I don't know about you, but I, I, I do better when I can hold things and see things. Now, before I get 750 emails of how this is not a biblical staff, I know that. This is a camping staff. This is my daughter's. There's a whistle on the end and all that kind of stuff. But, but as I was thinking this week of, of, of what Moses would be holding in his hands, and I know that scholars tell us that there's so much symbolism and importance wrapped up, that this is what he used for his occupation, and, and this is what he was familiar with, and this is what he had right next to him, and there's all kinds of things. So today I, I doubt it would be his staff if God approached us. It may be your iPhone. It's so common. You just had it with you. It just helps you get your job done. It's just what you use. It may be your car keys. I'm not sure what it is for you. But but God hears Moses' arguing. and He says, what's in your hand? Now, now Moses says, God, I, I've been, have you not heard my logic? They're not going to believe me. What does this have to do with anything? I, I, you must not have the right person. I'm not good enough. What does this have to do with anything? And God wants to get Moses off of his doubting of himself. And it's not because what he holds is so important. He just says, I just need you to be obedient. With what? Anything. I'm just telling you, take this and then just throw it on the ground. You know that passage of Scripture. Then God takes that rod or that stick or that staff and he turns it into a serpent or a snake. and, And the miracles begin to flow and things begin to move after that. But I just want to pause right there in that story that we're very familiar with and just say, God... If you would ask us that question today, what is in your hand, what would our response be? Is it an argument with you? Is it that you say there's a seed-sized beginning that you're going to do a God-sized dream out of, and we are so in doubt of ourselves. we are so in doubt of our situation, we say, God, I don't even know if I want to do that. I mean, you've answered all these questions and you've proven yourself to me, but I just don't, I want to want to, but I don't want to. I just don't. I just don't want to, God. That's where you've been or where you're at. Listen. Because God wants to do something in our midst today. It's very important to be up front and straight with your husband and wife. Agreed? Amen. I was reading about Martin Luther and (laughs) the loving support, I guess, that his wife gave to him. Martin Luther, the theologian was known from time to time to have bouts of depression and discouragement, and he was doubting that God could help him in a particular time. And and it's written that his wife would go into the closet and put on a black dress and a black veil, her funeral clothes, and she'd just go sit in the living room in her funeral attire. And Martin Luther would walk through and say, What's with you? And she said, Well, apparently God is dead by the way you're acting. You'd think that God is dead. I, I don't know if the people closest to you would... Be so brash to say, hey, apparently God must be dead by by the way you're acting, by the way you're talking, by the way you're living. I mean, what is wrong is, is maybe sizable, it may be a problem, but is it bigger than God? God is bigger than what is wrong. He's bigger than what's the matter in your life. See, Moses struggled with himself. And for God to ask him what was in his hand, it was more not about what he had or what he didn't have. It was about obedience. And he needed to obey, to relinquish what he was holding, to obey God that opened up the gates for the God-sized dream to happen. For us today, this staff in his hand can represent or can speak to us about obedience. See, God took this and delivered a nation... This real small seed-sized beginning with Moses. Uh, You you could make an argument. You could go all the way back to when he was born and and all the things that happened, how God provided for him. It was a seed-sized beginning that led to a deliverance of a nation. But it had to answer the question, what was in your hand? And obedience had to happen. Write this in. We often focus on what we don't have in our hands, but God chooses to work miracles With what we do have in our hand. We want to say, God, I'm not going to talk to you about what I have, my my stuff, my job, my, those things, but I want to tell you what I don't have. I don't have the personality to do it. I don't have the drive to do it. I don't have the talent. I don't have the pedigree. I don't have the the support. I don't have, I don't have the, the vision to do that. I don't have, we talk about all the things that we don't have, and He says, hey, I want to tell you what I want to do with what you do have in your hand. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not because what you have, that's going to be a problem. I'm going to trip over that. You wait and see. It's it's not because what you have is just so amazing. In fact, it's the opposite. It's that God is so amazing that He can take anything you have, and when you act in obedience to what He tells you, He can take that seed-sized beginning to a God-sized dream. You say, well, that's kind of a... A loose interpretation of an Old Testament story. And I'm a New Testament Christian. Matthew 17:20. 20. Jot this down. Jesus replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing is impossible for you. This passage of Scripture has great encouragement, but it's also been misinterpreted, misinterpreted so many times. This is not saying that if you have faith in God, you just do whatever you want and everything just goes to your command. If you read this in context, you read it closely. When you have faith in Jesus, just the smallest amount of your faith in Him will allow Him to get His will done. Because it's not about that your faith is just so big. If you trust God just a little bit, He is big enough to do what He already wanted to do in you. It can move any obstacle, any mountain, out of the way of the big God-sized dream He has for you. We often miss because of disobedience. It's just like First Samuel 17. We see this question, though it's not asked in the text, it could be brought there in the same kind of pattern. It's kind of the question, what's in your hand? But this time, not Moses, but David. In 1 Samuel 17, 38 and 40, if you want to jot that down, my fear is that you just listen to these and you just think, well, maybe it's in there somewhere. It's in there. You read it, whether now or later today or later this week, you find it. We find this true account of David the shepherd boy. David has heard about a giant and it's the Philistine army who's fighting with God's people and this giant comes up and says, hey... There's no need for all this bloodshed. Why don't we just have your best warrior matched up against our best warrior, me, and we'll just fight, and whoever wins will settle the whole thing. You remember this story. And so Goliath is calling them out, and God's people are in fear of the size of this warrior and the brashness of this warrior, to put it on the line this way. David hears about this, and he steps up, and he says, God, I, I, since you're talking to my heart, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bow down to this. You're, you're our God. You're the leader of our people. You can surely handle this giant. So he goes and he says, I'm gonna fight. And the king hears about this, calls him in, and he's blown away by his courage. But he says, um, you, you can't just take a sling. You need some armor. You need a sword. You need you need all this stuff. And then he begins to put all these things on him. And you know what happens. He says, I, I can't fight with your armor. I can't fight with your sword. Uh, I, I'm just going in the name of the Lord. And, and Saul goes, yes, I, I get that. But let's be smart about this. What's in your hand? You know, I don't know uh, if you've thought about that passage in a while. Again, don't send me emails. I know this is not a biblical slingshot. Someone's got like seven emails for me. I know. But, but the, the, uh, the illustration is still true today. If I would show up in Afghanistan to help some of our soldiers and I'm ready. I'm ready to fight. If I was part of a, of a Navy SEAL team and I'm going to go into a covert operation and I'm, 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 I'm ready to take them down, they'd say, what are you, what are you doing? I mean, you, you can do something with this slingshot. I wanted to bring marshmallows. Then you could catch it in your mouth. Wouldn't that have been fun? Just catch it right there, right in your mouth. But see, then it would distract me and you, and we'd get off track like I just did. So that's why we didn't do that. But when, when we take a slingshot and we say, well, there's some value. You could kill a squirrel. You could do a little bit of damage. But we've got better tools than that now. We've, got, we've, we've advanced more than that. We, come on, be smart about this. When David is standing there, he says, it's not about what I hold in my hand. It's about the God who we serve, who is going to be stronger than this giant that we face. See, it took a lot of faith for David to say to the king, not just that I'll fight Goliath. He was obeying God. But he said, I'm not going to take your extra stuff that God doesn't need. Because it's not about what I hold in my hand. It's about what God does through what I have. The slingshot needs to represent for a lot of us in our life the faith. It's not just obedience, but it's faith for the seed-sized beginning to turn into a God-sized dream. And you know what happened. You finished the story. David not only slew the giant, but he led his people. He led his people. He became the king from a shepherd boy to a king. And this pattern we find all throughout Scripture. Church, there'll be people who tell you all the time. Your challenge today may not be that you're so down on yourself and you, I just can't do it or God, I don't want to do it. And I know it's a seed sized beginning. You must have some big dream and I can't see it. That may not be your issue. You may be obedient. In fact, you're so obedient. You're pursuing God and it's a small start and you can't see it. But every person around you goes, I'm glad you want to obey God, but let's be smart about this. Now, I'm not talking about responding to bad pizza. I'm not talking about responding to just some kind of hope and wish that you have. But when God speaks to you, how many know that God will give you the strength to do what he told you to do? Carrie and I, four or five times in our life, as we're answering God's call in those different moments, people around us, even some mentors, came up and said, well, (laughs) not to doubt that you heard from God, but are you sure? (laughs) Are you sure you really want to put God in a position like that? That sounds like presuming on God. And see, when you've heard from God and you know that you've heard from God, my response was, yeah, I don't want to put God in that position where he's told me what to do and I say, but God, you know, uh, you're not enough. So I'm going to help you out. It's a good idea, but it doesn't match up with the political plan. It's a good idea, but, but it, it just seems a little bit risky. When God speaks, you obey and you have faith that he's big enough to take that seed-sized dream and make it into a God-sized reality. Philippians 4.13 reminds us, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I love this next one. If we had time, we could go all throughout, crisscross, all throughout Scripture, the same theme happening of what God takes a little bit and does a whole lot. But turning your Bibles with me to John chapter 6, verse 1 through 15. Jesus had been teaching to a large crowd. It says there was 5,000 men, and so it was considerably more than that when you added the women and children. The people were getting hungry, and Jesus commands his disciples to go in the crowd and to find some food. Listen to chapter 6. Is the question is asked, what's in your hand? And this time it's to the young boy. You may want to write that in. What's in your hand, young boy? Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Chapter 6, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test them, for you already had in mind what he was going to do. Don't you love it when Jesus does that in your life? Sometimes Jesus is asking you questions, not because he's dumbfounded. He wants to know if you really believe he's got a plan. He wants to make sure you know how impossible this situation is for you to handle. Hey, guys, you got nothing. We've got like, you know, 15,000 people out here. What, What do you think we should do to feed them? And look at the response. Um... It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for everybody to have one bite. Um, I don't know what you're asking here, Jesus. Verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? You know how the rest of the story ends. Jesus takes this, he blesses it, he breaks it, he passes it out, and it never runs empty. Everyone eats until they're full. They don't just get one bite, they eat until they're full. The crowd is amazed and Jesus drives home the point again and says, now go collect the leftovers. It's his bragging table, it's the bragging rights. And they bring up all these baskets full of all of these loaves and fish that were left over. And Jesus is driving home a point that this little boy gave an opportunity for us to see. What is in your hand, little boy? Now, a lot of time, we uh, we paint a picture of this little boy who's so willing to give his lunch to Jesus. And I like that take. That's cool. I'm not so sure how willing he would be or wouldn't be, but I don't know for sure, and I want to argue that you don't really know for sure either. The scripture doesn't tell us exactly how he responds all the way. But there's one thing that I think we can't assume. That when that boy left his Place That day to come hear this guy teach His intention was the lunch Was for him Either he prepared it or someone in his family prepared this meal for him And when jesus asks us what's in your hand Sometimes he's approaching us with things that we have intended to be for us But when he calls us to give it to him he wants to bless it and He wants to multiply it so it doesn't just feed us, it feeds everyone else around us. I think sometimes with the seed-sized beginning, what gets in our way of the God-sized dream is we become very comfortable that this was, this was for me, God. I mean, this is my lunch. And then we start comparing. I mean, this would do pretty good for me. But for all these people, let's be honest. It would be better for one of us to be full and happy than everybody to just go, Oh, that's good. Now I'm still hungry. What good would it do? In fact, the disciples were asking that question. But this giving of what was in His hand, it represented something more. The lunch basket, the lunch pail, in this boy's hand testifies to hope. It was hope that could be given to someone else if if He would surrender what He had. You see... uh, God can do a lot with a very little bit. I I remember uh, my grandmother, my nana, forcing me to take a nap at her house. Have you ever had a forced nap before? There's nothing more aggravating than a forced nap. I remember my mom used to tell me, you go take a nap. And I'd say, well, when can I get up? She'd say, whenever you wake up. And it took me many years until I was out of college to admit to what I used to do. Kids, I'm helping you out. When you're told to go take a nap, and you take a nap until you wake up. I used to take a belt, and I would tie it around my legs. Because I knew I was tired when i go to sleep. I'd try to turn and it'd wake me up. And my nap was over. I'd do all kinds of things to get out of a nap. Silly things like that that I probably shouldn't have confessed in front of everybody. Take that off the tape. That could be dangerous. <laughs> but I remember at my nana's house and I was sitting there and she was telling me to take a nap. And I was watching the clock and I could have swore the clock was broken. Time was moving so slow. But I heard her sing these words over and over and over again. And it was drilled into my mind. She thought it would help me sleep and it didn't. It just made me remember it the rest of my life. (laughs) Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There is a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Does the place you're called to labor seem too small and little known? It is great if God is in it and He'll not forget His own. I don't know if Those truths have been pounded in your brain, but we need to catch that when we give all that we are to Him, write this in, wonders happen and needs of others are met. When I take what I thought was intended for me and I give it to God, when there's just a little bit, when God is in it, it will be bigger than we've ever imagined. Moses had no idea that his obedience would lead to freedom of a nation. Even though David knew he was called to slay a giant, I don't think he knew the complexities of his faith and how it would lead his people for generations to come. This little boy, I doubt that he knew the hope that would be offered to many through his giving to God. Uh, There's some here, you hear a passage like this, you say, I've heard sermons like this before. I've heard that phrase. What's in your hand, give it to God. What's in your hand, throw it down. And if we're really honest, we don't talk like that. But if we're really honest, we say, you know what? God's been asking me a lot about what's in my hand. What's in God's hand? What's God going to do in this whole thing? Jesus, what's in your hand? Let's look at that. What's in your hand, Jesus? Reminds me of John chapter 20, 26-28. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. The door was locked, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side and feel that scar. Stop doubting, Thomas, and believe. Thomas said, My Lord, my God. Here's the great news for somebody here today. You need to be honest with your doubting questions because when Jesus is asking you what's in your hand and, and He's calling you to obedience and calling you to faith and calling you to allow Him to give hope to others through you, and when you say, well, what, what do you have for me, Jesus? You're asking me all these things about Him. He invites you and He says, Get up close to me. Put your hand right here and see that I have completed everything that you need. Somebody here has been buying into the lie of the enemy. For all three of these categories, obedience, faith, willingness to give hope to others that it just won't happen. There's not enough there. And Jesus says, I have finished it for you. But the enemy will fight this every step of the way in your life. Others around you will fight this. And they'll say that seed-sized beginning, it's not going to take root into anything. And many of you, you yourself, will fight this. But God says, trust me, put your hand here and see what I have done for you. Jesus still invites you to see that the nail-scarred hands testify to God's provision for you. Jot that down. The the nail-scarred hands, they testify to God's provision for you. It is finished. It is final for you. And when you accept it, it meets every need that you have. Somebody here today needs to hear the passage from the Old Testament that says, Do not dwell on the past. Forget those former things. Don't you see I'm doing a, doing a new thing? Do you not perceive it? There are, there are springs that will well up in the desert. I'm making a way in the desert and the wasteland. God is moving. God wants to take that seed He planted in you. And whether you can see it or not, there's a God-sized dream. Isn't that good? I thought it was good. I get riled up when I hear things like that in here. Yeah! Let's go get them, God. Let's charge hell with a squirt gun, God. Let's do it. And I want you to be charged up in here. I want you to come into His house and hear His Word and be encouraged and leave with encouragement. But, but I don't think that's God's full intent today. Because the seed-sized beginning that, that He is pointing out to you, it's challenged tomorrow morning. It's challenged on Thursday afternoon at work. It's challenged Friday night when you get that phone call and you begin to go, God, I know you want to do something in my life, but I don't know what it is. Moses was not approached by God with the 57-point plan of how he's going to deliver God's people from Israel if he would obey. He said, go Do what I tell you. You see, (laughs) David was not told, I'm going to raise you up to be the king of this nation. Here's what's going to happen. Just go kill the giant with what I've given you. Nothing more. The little boy was not said, Hey, if you give this lunch, let me tell you the return on your investment. We want everything spelled out for us. But God says, Remember, I will take a seed-sized beginning Jesus taught in the parable that the mustard seed would give birth to something so much greater. And it's not just for the tree. <laughs> it's for the whole world to find rest and hope in what I'm doing in you. Amen. And so here's what we provided for you today. Maybe your heart's stirred. If not, that's okay. It will be. Because I know God's Word won't come back void. But what we need more than, than a then a shot in the arm today is a reminder Monday and Thursday and Friday. And so on this little card that I want you to pick up when you walk out at each of the exits, I want you to take this card, and before I tell you what's on it, I want you to put it on your bathroom mirror. I want you to put it on your refrigerator. Uh, as I say, you put it on your windshield, that would be kind of dangerous. Put it on your visor in your car. Put it on your desk at work Some place where you'll see it over and over again And on here it's just a question What's in your hand? A seed size beginning to god size dream. It's a picture of a, of a tree in the background And you see how small the seed is and, and there's a little mustard seed in here I know more about mustard seeds than I want to I filled more mustard seeds than I ever want to again I know that when you spill them on the floor They go everywhere They're tiny little suckers I got my daughter to eat one That was kind of fun They taste nasty <laughs> But when you look at the seed, I don't, want you, I don't even know why I told you that stuff. I don't want you to remember that. I want you to remember what Jesus said. Something this small will do something huge. Because when you're at that bathroom mirror, when you're in your car, when you're at your desk, you'll say, God, I don't know if I see you doing anything new. I don't know if I can see the big plan. He asked these questions. What seed size beginning is God doing in you? What is it that He's planting you? What area of obedience? What area of faith? What area of giving hope to others? Is He starting small? That's going to change possibly the whole world. What's in your hand that God's asking you to trust Him with? And finally, what God-sized dream are you willing to dream? As I pray for you today, I want to challenge you to grab this card on the way out. And I'm praying that this verse will take root in your heart. Let's pray together. Father, I pray over my brothers and sisters your promise to forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. You told us to see that you were doing a new thing. Now it springs up. You're asking us, don't we see it in our midst that you're making a way in the desert, streams in the wasteland. Father, I pray that you'll take this truth that has changed the world and you allow it to be ingrained in our mind deeper than my Nana's song at nap time. Just as Pastor Trey said that we'll bind them to our hands and to our heads. We'll put it on the doorpost. We will remember your words to us. And that we will be faithful in obedience and faith and giving hope to others to see your dream fulfilled through our community. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.